We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, please. I'm Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. And uh, tonight we're going to be talking to returning guest and family member, Chris Phillips from Central Ohio. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you, big brother. <laughs> hey, thank you. Uh, big brother, it sounds very Orwellian. But uh, in any event, <laughs> want to wanted to welcome Chris back again. Chris uh, basically heads up the telemedicine program for the East Coast, over 3 million patients. And we've been talking about COVID as to what's going on. Uh, Chris, you want to tell us a little bit about what role do you play and, and how are things been going? Yeah, so once again, my unique observation, I'm not an epidemiologist, doctor, or researcher, but I am a nursing executive over a very high-volume, high-profile uh, clinical program that's really national. As you mentioned, um, I've had a front-row seat at this from the very beginning, Um I have, geez, I have over 35 years now of healthcare experience. So I've been through the beginning and end of AIDS, swine flu. I've, I've seen so much. I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. Um, so once again, we're, we're handling over 3,000 calls a month and uh, of all ages. So I'm going to kind of give you the boots on the ground um, perspective on what's, what's been happening. Okay, let's hear from the ground here, ground up. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Oh, oh, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. So, uh, well, my, my personal observation is after taking so many calls, even recently here in the last month or two, this new form of COVID that, uh, that is out um, has a broader age span to it. It's uh, more gentle. <laughs> it's more broad-based and gentle. I'm not seeing the, the really harsh, fearful respiratory symptoms. Um, it's much more confusing with a general influenza or flu or common cold. So it's a a cough, congestion, body aches, headaches. Um, Unfortunately, we're seeing it both in the vaccinated and unvaccinated. There there is definitely breakthrough out there. Um, I can tell you from personal experience for those who are vaccinated, um, it's generally much more mild and um, they have a quicker recovery and a better recovery. Uh, true story. I'm I'm fully vaxxed. I'm I'm 57 years old, and I had the J and J about 90 days after my J and J. I got COVID along with a couple of loved ones in my family who were not vaccinated, and it was remarkably different for me. Um, I, I was achy, uh, stayed home, um, rested. I recovered right at day 10, and the weirdest thing happened. I actually felt better after having COVID than I felt before it almost like at 110%. And I don't know if it's psychological, but some of that I felt was maybe related to a, a really strong, robust immune response. So as far as I'm concerned, I feel my own immunity is probably very strong at this time. Well, you know, you mentioned that uh, you had experienced the breakthrough COVID infection. 
and you had J and J. Is there any difference in the frequency or the volume of breakthroughs between J and J and the uh, the the uh, Pfizer and the Moderna? You know, I don't know the current epidemiology of that right now. And, and I got to be honest with you, because I work with some of the top docs in the country, more in a primary care, not infectious disease. And um, they're, you know, there, there's so much noise in the news, um, even as it relates to scientific studies and observations and all of that. So I can't really tell the difference. Um, I know that according to the efficacy trials, you know, they would say that J&J uh, probably had the lowest um, amount of efficacy or effectiveness versus the other two. So I, I really can't tell on, on that level. Well, I know that the J&J is sort of more of a traditional kind of a vaccine based on uh, mm -hmm. actual attenuated viruses that do not reproduce uh, versus mm -hmm. the uh, the the messenger RNA uh, theory that's used for Pfizer and Moderna. That's why I was just curious. Mm -hmm. how, how about uh, with regard to people who have had their booster shots and whether or not they're subject to uh, breakthrough as well? And if so, what's the frequency of that? Yeah, that's too new. That that has just been happening, um, you know, really in the last several weeks that the boosters have really started kicking off with those who who are um, who are qualify. And um, I, I mean, I have to say, from from what I see, obviously there are not, you know, mature studies out there. And and I think that's where I, I think people who are vaccinated need to have maybe more grace and sympathy for the unvaccinated, you know, because um, there's not a lot of established studies out there that are very longitudinal, as we would call them, that have been going on for three or four years, obviously. So we definitely do not have any line of sight uh, what the breakthrough variants are going to be for the boosters. Um, however, you know, when they do serology tests on those who've had boosters, they can tell, um, you know, that it appears that the, the, the boosters, you know, significantly increase the effectiveness in your immunity against these and against variants. Now, I've heard that the primary variant that's still circulating around is the Delta variant. Is that accurate? Or do we have something else now? As far as I know, yeah. As, as, and, and once again, you know, we, we talked to a lot, a lot of sick people on the phone. And um, so we really don't have line of sight into, the, into that. But as far as we know, uh, some of the top docs I'm working with are kind of bracing for the next variant, but have certainly not identified it yet, either domestically or internationally yet. So there's some speculation, but we, we still believe we're primarily working with the Delta variant. From the meetings you're having with doctors and epidemiologists and infectious disease doctors and so on, uh, what... Uh, is the efficacy of all of the vaccines, whether it's the J&J or whether it's the other two, with regard to the Delta variant, uh, is, is there much of a blockage or is it just sort of a, a tamping down of it if you have been vaccinated? Yeah, that's, that's really beyond my expertise. So <laughs> I want to be careful I don't go there. That's, you're talking about some real immunology, you know, studies, CDC stuff. So um, but I, I mean, I can just tell you that so much of the actual real data that's dependable is 
is fairly lagging, and and it is somewhat happening real time in the community as far as um, you know, giving people boosters, seeing the variant come, and then and then doing a six month look back, not necessarily on a trial size, but on on a population of what actually happened. So I can tell you overall, the phone lines have gotten kind of quieter, which is pretty exciting. So something is working, at least from our end. Um, but I can't I can't really comment on exactly what is happening as with the Delta variant. Why, as to why or how. Uh, with yeah. what you've experienced in seeing, you know, people close to you who are not vaccinated with the uh, COVID and probably the Delta variant, uh, what are the symptoms that they noticed? And they didn't have to go to the hospital. They didn't have ventilators. Uh, what what mm-hmm. could someone expect if they're in a similar situation? Well, obviously, the most important thing to always, well, this is going to answer your question, and it's going to tell you what to really look out for whenever you get COVID, whether you're vaccinated or non-vax, unvaccinated. Um, And that would be an unfortunate movement from just simple aches and pains and congestion. We just expect that. We expect headaches, aches, pains, congestion, maybe a sore throat. We kind of expect that. If it starts moving into true respiratory distress, that that's not an irritation of coughing and congestion, but that's where it's, it's just a little bit more strenuous to breathe. You may have some gurgling in the chest, like a pneumonia feel or some wheezing. Uh, so I saw that. I saw that in the unvaccinated round here of the Delta. And that's what that's when you really want to start moving, moving towards um, getting a primary care um, evaluation or an urgent care or emergency room visit if it starts really getting into some sort of chest tightness. So I still did see that in the unvaccinated this round, uh, but not so much with the vaccinated. You know, the fact that um, the Delta variant for COVID, or forget about the Delta variant, COVID generally is still with us. Um, how how much of it is out there? How much at risk are we? And I mean, uh, just in our daily activities, now that many people are not wearing masks and people are going to restaurants and grocery stores, uh, how frequently are we running into or being confronted with live COVID out there that we are at risk? Is that something that is heavily out there or it's very lightly out there and very hit and miss? Where, where do you think we are? That's in... That's an excellent question because I I support several public schools and several large high-profile employer groups and their their place of employment. Um, So you do have to assume that both the the COVID and variant, the Delta variant and new variants are out there. Just use safety and common sense. So just assume it's in your workplace, it's in your school, you know, it's in the airport. Just assume that it's, it's not gone away. All of our problems aren't taken care of. Let me hold it up right there because we're going to take a short break. Uh, we're listening to Chris Phillips talking about COVID and what's the current status of COVID. So don't go away. We're going to, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, the advocate. We'll be right back after these words. Welcome back to Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. We're talking to Chris Phillips about COVID. 
And uh, Chris, again, uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, we were talking about uh, the fact that COVID is still out there and what should we be doing now as far as precautions? Right, right. So whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, as I was mentioning before the break, I'm, I'm very involved with large workplaces, schools, uh, the whole community, the whole population health on this. So the safe thing is just to be level-headed, practical, and just assume that COVID is out. You know, it's there. there the Delta is there, and there will be emerging variants that we don't know exactly what they'll do. So it'll be around the corner. Um, you know, just go back to the, the basics of just good hygiene. I like to say, hopefully, <laughs> that everyone's kind of become an epidemiologist, right? I mean, in the past, you used to really ignore this stuff, not think much about it. Um, but now everyone's kind of become an epidemiologist. You should for your own health and, and the safety of your family. So, um, you know, I think remember when you're when you're outdoors in a car alone or in a car with you know, loved ones who are vaccinated, who aren't sick, you, you don't need to wear masks, okay, you know? Um, but if, if you're going into an airport, into a close-quarter international market, or to work in an office setting or school, you know, when you think about these mask mandates for schools, I know they're political and they're touchy, but think about being in a closed area for, you know, six to ten hours a day in close quarters, with a lot of people. That's just common sense. That's where you, you, we just all have to assume that COVID is there in those environments somewhere and um, the Delta and other emerging variants are going to be there at some point and just exercise that type of vigilance um, and, until further notice. But it, we could be common, we have common sense about that, you know? Oh, those good, good advice. Well, you know, with regard to uh, to COVID, uh, this is the flu season, and uh, these precautions uh, really apply to uh, contracting the flu, doesn't it, or don't they? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We talk about this quite a bit. We we and by the way, I also meet with a number of large peer groups: um, Humana, Anthem, Aetna. Um, my my team meets with their disease management specialists and leads. And we've all been remarkably and pleasantly surprised by how um, other infectious diseases have been remarkably lower, you know, very little influenza out there, not as much pneumonia, not as much RSV. Um, so yeah, it, it's definitely these, these techniques are really, really good. And you know what's, what's both heartening and a little disheartening is some of the precautions we're putting into the workplace and schools are common sense. If you have a fever over 100, if you have a new or unexpected cough um, or malaise, body aches, you know, don't come to school. Don't come to work until uh, you're either better or you're tested. I mean, that's just common sense stuff. Um, I, I saw a, a mainstream article that said uh, we inadvertently um, cured the flu. Now, it's a little facetious, but, but there's some truth to that. So that's one of the silver linings, I believe, is we have a tremendous opportunity to avoid sickness and illness of all types um, through this. If we just do the practical, right, caring thing. Well, that's good advice. Uh, the, uh, we, we talked about booster shots, but what about vaccinating children? How is that looking? Is that, is that scary or is that just the next logical step in public health? Both. 
I, I mean, I just got to be honest, both. And, and I'm not highly polarized on either direction, vaxxed, unvaxxed. Um, I don't make this into a political issue. Um, I tell loved ones around me on both sides of the vaxxed, unvaxxed um, talking points. I say, look, at heart, I'm a nurse care manager, case manager. I'm sworn as a, as a case manager to advocate for the patient to navigate the patient, to be a liaison for the patient. So I, I really, really try to keep a balanced approach. So let me talk about the, the Pfizer for Kids that's just been authorized uh, for five-year-old, 12-year-old through the CDC. Um, I, I can't help but to say even the mainstream um, medicine is a little concerned that this is really based off of a study of about 5,000 children, okay? So... Um, although COVID and these vaccines have been around now for about, you know, um, almost two years, that's still a relatively low sample size. Um, however, um, it's still very, very valuable to weigh the risk to benefit, okay? So if you have a high-risk child health-wise, if you have a high-risk grandparent living with you, high-risk people around you, you definitely need to weigh the risk to benefit. And one of my main, main talking points is find a really good primary care provider for yourself, an internist, and a pediatrician or, an, or a pediatrician, and really get on this, you know, get someone who's on the same page with you scientifically and, um, you know, um, ideologically about this issue, and then help them help you navigate exactly when your kids um, should get the, the Pfizer vaccine. So it does seem very um, promising, very valid, um, but, but also, um, once again, I would show tremendous grace and understanding for those who are hesitant. Um, I think even scientifically, it, it's still kind of new, still kind of a relatively small sample size, although very, very valuable. Now, how close are we getting to herd immunity? Uh, we talked about that early on, and now with uh, two things going, and that is the vaccination process with the three vaccines, and also natural immunity caused by people who have developed their own antibodies from suffering through COVID. Uh, how are we coming? Have you heard anything out there in the medical community about uh, approaching herd immunity or experiencing it now as we speak? Oh, I got a great answer for this one. Yeah. So, you know, as oh, I, I even did well, some I study asked. on this. Yeah. <laughs> I even did some study on this yesterday. You know, there's some, you know, uh, real confusion about herd immunity and it's no one's fault. You know, whether it's, whether it's Pfizer, the vaccine developers, researchers, CDC, nobody wants to stick to a number. Um, they kind of started that way saying, hey, when we get to 80% vaccination, we'll, we'll reach herd immunity. Now everybody's backing away from a number. So we really, we really don't know. And then we had um, the Delta breakthrough. And um, so that, that really screwed up the whole herd immunity concept. But I can tell you this, once again, from somebody who does over 3,000 calls uh, a month, not me personally, but my team. And, and by the way, I have three um, PhDs on my nursing team, five five nursing professors, one who works at the NIH. So we're, we're pretty high caliber people. Let me tell you, herd immunity is real from my perspective. And what I mean by that is I see these real-time megatrends across the country. 
that's just fascinating. You know, some Saturday, I'll just start getting phone calls from, you know, people throughout the country about the same age, uh, same vaccine status with the same exact symptoms. You know, they're having a sore throat, headache, and body aches. I'm thinking, my goodness, like, we really are being affected as a herd. There's something going on here. Um, now, I mean, there, there's always outliers. You know, some people get much more sick and get hospitalized and all of that. Um, so there's, there's, there's definitely a truth to herd immunity that I see um, within schools and populations throughout the country. We haven't figured it out yet, but I think there's tremendous hope and excitement that we will, that we will figure out um, not only not only herd immunity, where we're at with it, uh, maybe, you know, be more precise with our, our medicine, our treatments, our vaccines. So, um, yeah, it's, it's definitely real. I see it remarkably uh, every day, but uh, we haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> okay, now we have about a minute to go. Is that what we have? Do we have a trend, finally, that uh, if this trend continues on for, like, the next number of months or continuing months, that will actually be back to normal from a standpoint of a public health standpoint. Yeah, we wish. We wish it, it would. Um, it makes sense that it could. But, but once again, we, we are all wondering what's going to happen with the holiday travel, with um, international travel, with international break, you know, variants, blah, 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 all that stuff we've, we've heard of. Um, I, I just, you know, another silver lining, though, it seems to me for sure that the general healthcare community as a whole is maturing, improving, getting ahead of this. The lines have slowed down. There's a new camaraderie between um, big health systems, hospitals, pharmacy, primary care, health insurers. So, um, and there's some great new potential treatments right around the corner. Things similar to Tamiflu, you know, Pfizer oh. has Paxlow. Yeah, we're out, we're out of it has a 90 percent activity. Yeah, so there's, about there's good promise. Oh, outstanding! Yeah. Well, Chris, uh, as always, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an optimistic reality check as to what's going on out there today. So, thank you so much. Absolutely, anytime, brother. Thank you, thank you, Chris. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. In the next two segments, we're going to be talking about Cuyahoga County and the Cuyahoga County executive position coming up for re-election uh, next year. And with us tonight, we have Lee Weingart, candidate for that position. Lee, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be back on the radio. Yeah, welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, I was correct. The election for that position will be next year. Yeah, the primary is May of 2022, and the general election will be November of 2022. So we're about 13 months away. Well, very good. Well, for people who don't know Lee Weingart, tell us a little about your background. And you've been involved in elected office before. Tell us about that. I have been. So back when I was 29 years old, 
uh, in the mid-1990s, I served as county commissioner, the last Republican to serve as county commissioner, back when we had a government of three commissioners and other elected officials. Of course, today we now have a county executive and a county council of 11 members. We made that change in 2010. So it's kind of a homecoming for me. I'm going back to county government after 25 years of being in the private sector. Uh, but I'm going back to run for county executive, which is now the single executive as opposed to the old three-headed executive we had when we had county commissioners. Well, that time went by fast, and uh, boy, we were it all did. young back uh, in those days. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. When I was county commissioner back in the mid-'90s, we faced a big problem with the Cleveland Browns. We needed to find a way to convince the Browns to stay in Cleveland or at least bring a team back to Cleveland. And so I worked closely with then-Mayor Mike White, and we worked with the citizens of Cuyahoga County, and we got them to agree to an extension of a small tax on alcohol and tobacco called the Sin Tax. That extension passed by a margin of 72%, which was the biggest margin of any tax in Cuyahoga County history to that point. We took that to the NFL as evidence of our support for professional football in Cleveland. Lo and behold, we got a team back uh, in 1999, We've struggled for a long time with that team, but I'm happy to say that the Browns look like a really good team this year. Um, but we did that because we relied upon the citizens of Cuyahoga County. We gave them a voice, we gave them a choice, and they chose the right way, and they got football as their reward. So I'm very proud of that accomplishment back when I was county commissioner. Well, very, very good. Well, the years have gone by. You left government. What have you been doing between then and now? And, and uh, thank you for coming back into politics, but uh, what why are you coming sure. back? What, so, what's your uh, motivation? So, so um, you know, when I left county government, I had one child. I have now have three. They're all adult children. Um, wow. I have, for the last 20 years, Time. been running a, a firm that I founded. Uh, it's the biggest federal and state government affairs firm in the state of Ohio. We help nonprofit organizations, local governments, and companies uh, secure funding for their projects, whether they be technology projects advanced energy projects, other advanced uh, technology projects. Uh, and then we, we work with them to secure other funding in the budget at the federal government and state government levels. We have secured over the last 20 years, roughly, about $800 million in federal and state government funding. Why is that important for county executive? Well, I know where the money is. So when we send our tax dollars to Washington, D.C. and Columbus, we don't get back our fair share. We have the wrong leadership in office right now. They don't know how to access that money. I spent the last 20 years accessing federal and state funds for my clients. I did the same thing for the citizens of Cuyahoga County. So when I talk about big ideas for the county, we'll fund those using tax dollars from Washington and Columbus. We want to use our local tax dollars for those good ideas. Well, it certainly sounds you're accustomed to looking at big numbers. And What's the budget for Cuyahoga County per year? So if you look at the general fund plus the health and human services levies, it's about $750 million. If you add in all of the federal funding for infrastructure and uh, health and human services programs, it's about $1.7 billion. So it's, uh, it's a large government, uh, not always visible to the citizens of the county, but we do a lot in county government. We focus on abused children, on marriages in crisis, families in crisis. Uh, adults who are seniors who are being neglected, people who are addicted to drugs or to opiates, which, of course, has been a major problem the last 10 years in Cuyahoga County. Uh, we run the infrastructure of the county, so that's the prosecutor's office, the jail, the public defender, 
we manage a lot of county roads. The voting system, voting is done through uh, the county here, Cuyahoga County. So it really is an important, critical foundation of our community. And I think we need better leadership to run that critical uh, foundation of our community. We've had the same guy in office now for seven years. Um, the last four have been particularly bad. And I think it's time for a change, bring in new leadership, new visionary leadership to lead us um, for the next eight years. When we watch political offices or even corporate offices, uh, we could tell when people become stale and things need new ideas and uh, sort of a, a refresh button to be pushed. Uh, what, what are some of the things that you see you can change and improve upon here in, in Cuyahoga County? Well, the first thing is uh, emphasizing investing in people, not in government. So the current county executive has grown the government dramatically since he became executive in 2015, both in terms of the budget, in terms of the personnel. My different vision, um, I'd like to reduce the size of county government through the budget, and I would offer early voluntary retirement programs to county employees. There are today about 1,000 who are eligible for voluntary early retirement. If we can get them to retire early, that'll be a 1,000 fewer positions in county government. If we bring back some number, uh, we hire other people to fill those positions. I don't think we need a 1,000. This is government after all, so it's probably overstaffed. We bring back four, maybe 500 people to fill those positions. Now we have 500 fewer positions in county government. That saves about $50 million a year. That's money that we can invest back in the community in job-creating projects, in private housing projects, and community development projects. So without raising anybody's taxes, we can invest in our community and address issues like unemployment, homelessness, hunger, poverty, and crime. You know, a big, a big question for anyone stepping into a new position, which is really an existing position that's been operating for a while, is to uh, come in and look at, like you are just mentioning, getting rid of the fat as far as excess employees. How do you go about determining whether or not they're running lean and mean or there's excess fat to cut? And, and how do you go through a process to uh, carefully winnow down the number of uh, employees you're going to have? So back in 2010, when the first time they had the, the new form of county government, they appointed a commission of uh, nonprofit leaders, government leaders, and business leaders to look at county government to see where the savings could be realized. They came up with $70 million a year in savings. Now, that's probably extreme. Maybe we're not anywhere near $70 million, but maybe we're at 30 or 40 or $50 million. So I would dust off that report and take a look at it again and implement some of the things they had in mind. Um, and then I would look at every department and, see, and look at the number of frontline workers to managers. And I suspect that we have too many managers in county government. That tends to be the case in big institutions like universities, cities, counties, and other large uh, organizational, organizations and institutions. So I would look at the <clears throat> frontline worker ratio to manager ratio and bring in uh, a more reasonable number uh, uh, ratio between those two positions. So there's one department in Cuyahoga County that I'm aware of where you've got um, 27 workers and nine managers. That seems extreme. One example, we'll try and ferret out all the other ones that are like that. I was going to ask, are there any departments that you have uh, at least preliminarily targeted uh, to get a, a better review? 
So we'll look at all of them. You know, I want to get into government. Uh, the election's next November. Presuming I win, that'll give me two months before I would take over office in January of 2023 to really do a deep dive into county government and find out where we can uh, lean out the government uh, and save the taxpayers' money and create a source of funding to invest in the community to try and solve these age-old problems that I mentioned. Well, it sounds like a plan already for a, a nice, uh, smooth transition. Uh, so you're already thinking of uh, transitioning into into the new position, I hear, from what you're saying. I am. So, you know, so I was there a long time ago, right? I was there as county commissioner, so I really know county government, um, and I've been involved with the county government over, uh, over the years since then. So I'm familiar with the structure and the programs and departments in county government. So I bring that to the table that a lot of other candidates wouldn't bring. Uh, and because the fact that I was a commissioner versus county executive doesn't really change, the county government does the same thing now that it did when I was county commissioner. So I bring uh-huh. that experience. Um, I've got a vision for the county. I'm calling it Chicago 2030. It focuses in these crucial areas that I mentioned to try and solve our plaguing problems in Cuyahoga County. And I've got a backbone. So I'm, I will stand up. I will enforce the rules that the current executive does not enforce, particularly when it comes to procurement, um, often skirts the, the uh, competitive bid requirements, gives contracts to his friends as opposed to going through a competitive bid process, uh, and cuts out minority contractors from many opportunities, which I think is wrong. So uh, I, I, I will enforce uh, Lee, let's, let me interrupt for just a moment. We're going to take a short break. Sure, that uh, We're great. talking to Lee Weingart, former Cuyahoga County Commissioner and now candidate for Cuyahoga County Executive. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Lee after these words. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. This is our final segment for this evening. Uh, and again, thank you for joining us. We're talking to Lee Weingart, former Cuyahoga County Commissioner and candidate for Cuyahoga County Executive uh, in 2022. Uh, Lee, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. Thank you, Nick. You know, we, we talked about uh, some of your plans. Sounds like you're about to hit the ground running and you have another year to go. Uh, but uh, that's good to hear. It's refreshing and robust, as they say. Uh, problems in Cuyahoga County. Uh, problems that we've been looking at over the last years is the county jail. We, we've had a number of deaths and lawsuits against the county because of the mismanagement of the jail. Uh, we've had the jail director sentenced to prison over the mismanagement of the jail. What is your take on the jail, and what do you think is going to happen? So this all goes back to Armin Budish, the current executive, his plan to turn the jail into a profit center. He wanted to have all of the how do you, prisoners. How do you turn, how do you turn it? How do you turn it? How do you turn it? Jail. Here's what you do. Center. So you you uh, have all the prisoners come in from the suburbs and you house them in one jail downtown, the county jail. You charge the the suburbs $185 per night to hold their prisoners. So what did he do? The current capacity of the jail is about 1,700. At one point, he had almost 2,400 people in the jail because he brought in all the suburban prisoners. So he was driving up his revenue by overcrowding the jail. Then he was reducing his expenses by understaffing the jail. So they were not giving the health screens that are required. They were not taking the precautions that are necessary when you book someone into the county jail. He was warned by the nurse supervisor who worked for Metro Health that if he continued this practice, people would start dying. Uh, six weeks later, the first person died in the county prison. 
Then people two through seven died, making eight total deaths in the course of about four months. What did Armin do? Did he try and solve the problem of the death in the county jail? No, he didn't. He got the nurse supervisor who warned him, got him fired. That nurse supervisor has a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Cuyahoga County for retribution uh, and civil rights violations. So now Armin Budish wants to build a $1 billion jail. He's trying to suggest that the deaths in the jail were caused by the physical structure, where we know they were caused by his mismanagement, his inattention, uh, and his disregard of human life. This $1 billion jail will be uh, 2,400 uh, inmates, which I think is, is big by, too big by at least 50%. Last year, during COVID, there were 1,000 people in the county jail. If 1,000 worked in 2020, it works in 2021 and in the years going forward. What we need is more thoughtful diversion programs. So if you have a mental health challenge or a drug addiction challenge, you should never be in the county jail. We should get you into treatment right away to get you back on your feet. If you're arrested for a nonviolent offense, you should never be in the county jail. We should find a different way um, to take care of you. So if we are more creative with our diversion programs, we won't need to build a jail the size Armin wants to build, 2,400 people, and we won't have to spend a billion dollars of county taxpayer money to do it. So I have a fundamental difference when it comes to criminal justice and crime than Armin Budish does. He basically says, build a big jail and throw them all in it. I say, let's find more economical, more creative ways to deal uh, with people who've been arrested. Is the, uh, the current jail plan for the new larger jail going to continue to have the, the, uh, the work plan where you're going to have suburban prisoners come in and uh, pay for uh, their housing and make, make money for the county? Is that still part of the plan? So you know, because of what happened, the 12 people dying in the county jail under Armin Budish's supervision, many suburbs are trying to uh, bring back their own jail. So I met with folks in Euclid recently. They'd like to uh, get their jail back online because they don't trust the county with their prisoners, which makes a lot of sense. Um, other cities have jails that they could reopen. Um, I think you know, regionalizing jails would be a better idea than what Armin did, which was to bring them all downtown. Um, you know, Some people arrested in communities don't need to come downtown. Um, to be in the county jail if they're arrested again on a nonviolent offense particularly. So um, I think you're going to see a movement away from centralizing the jail because of what happened to the 12 people that died in the county jail, and I applaud that. I, I, um, the mayors who want to have their own jails, uh, I think, should be able to do that. Uh, tell me about the method of paying for this jail. Where is the money going to come from? So what they've suggested, so there was a temporary sales tax, one quarter percent put in place to cover the cost of the convention center. So back in 2007, that was passed by the then county commissioners, myself not included. That was long after I had been county commissioner. It was put on for 20 years to pay for the convention center. So it burns off in the year 2027. What Armin Budish has said he will do is extend that temporary sales tax forever forever to pay for his new jail. That tax generates about $50 million a year in revenue for Cuyahoga County. If you're going to build the jail Armand has in mind, it costs you a billion dollars. That means that the next 20 years, from 2027 to 2047, 
that tax will only be used to build a new, too large county jail. My view, much different than Armin's is, if you want to extend that sales tax, go to the people, get their permission, and then you can extend it. And if you extend it, don't use it to build a jail. Use it for, jo- for programs that create jobs, create private housing opportunities, and new community development. But for goodness sakes, not a new billion-dollar jail. Well, the election for uh, county executive is not until next year, next November, ultimately. Uh, what, is this project going to be up for approval before that time, or will, will there be anything that uh, could be done, or are we? How far along on the way are we toward the new jail? Unfortunately, they're a long way away. They're long ways, you know, toward getting it done. Um, Armin probably has control of the county council. He'll get the six votes that he needs out of eleven to extend the tax forever. Um, I'm hoping that when I become county executive, I can stop this project, and I will stop the project. I will not, uh, if I can stop it, I will not permit a billion dollars to be spent building a new county jail. Well, that's something we have to wait and watch and see what's going to happen. Uh, over the next year, while we're waiting for the election, what, what do you expect to happen with the county? Are we going to be in good shape, bad shape, right road, wrong well, road? Well, we're, we're we in pretty bad shape right now. Um, so the new two-year budget was just released last week. Uh, not surprisingly, the county executive, Armin Budish, is using budget sleight of hand, uh, chicanery, if you will, to try and show that he can balance the budget, which he's never done. So since 2015, when he became executive, until this year, 2021, he has not balanced a single county budget, running over $100 million of deficits over the course of those seven years. It's a remarkable record of failure when it comes to balancing the county budget. When I was county commissioner, even though we were facing a $114 million loss, we balanced our budget every year. So again, I'm responsible with the taxpayers' dollars. I balance budgets. I don't spend more than I need to. That was what I did as county commissioner. Armin Budish loves to spend tax dollars, loves to grow the government, and he runs outrageously unbalanced county budgets. You're already starting your campaign. Uh, what are you hearing from people out on the street? Are they aware uh, of all these issues? So, you know, there is a general understanding of what the county government does, but there is a better understanding that the community is sick, that things are not going well. So we're recovering from the pandemic, no thanks to county government. In fact, last year, uh, the county got $215 million in CARES Act funding to help the community recover from the pandemic. Armin Budish used two-thirds of that, $125 million, to cover the county's payroll. Very little went into the community to nonprofit organizations, small businesses, restaurants, families who were in crisis. Nope. Armin used that money to cover his payroll at the county. So there's a sense that things are not good. I mean, Cleveland is the biggest poor city in America. Uh, Cleveland is the least broadband-connected city in America. It's a bad place to start a business, uh, and it's a bad place to live if you live in the city of Cleveland and even some of the first-ring suburbs now. So there's desperation. Um, There is an opening understanding that somebody new can do a better job. When I talk about my vision, my Congo 2030 vision um, with people, the voters, I give them, I tell them what I want to do, and I say, I'm a Republican. They said, that doesn't matter. If you do the things that you said you're going to do, we'll vote for you. So... 
I've come across very few people who are supporting Armin Budish or, for that matter, any Democrat for county executive. And I've come across a lot of open-minded voters who think that change is time for change. We need new leadership in Cuyahoga County government. Well, it sounds like you're very enthusiastic, very fresh. And like the term I used earlier would bring a robust attitude to the whole look at government. So, Lee, thank you so much for joining us tonight and uh, wish you Nick, well. Thanks very much. It was great to be here tonight. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night and stay healthy and safe. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and 